Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org, see our videos on YouTube, and catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. I'm a physician at Stanford University's School of Medicine and widow of Dr. Paul Kalanithi, who wrote the New York Times bestseller, When Breath Becomes Air. I'm also your moderator for today's program. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, Dr. Sunita Puri. She's assistant professor of clinical medicine at the University of Southern California and medical director of palliative medicine at the Keck Hospital and Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center at USC. She's also author of the new book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. Dr. Puri completed medical school and residency training in internal medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and fellowship training in hospice and palliative medicine at Stanford. In 2018, she received the Eitz Chaim Tree of Life Award from the USC Keck School of Medicine, awarded annually to a member of the faculty who, in the eyes of the campus community, models and provides humanistic and compassionate care. Growing up as an American-born daughter of immigrant parents, Dr. Pori always tried to live up to her parents' expectations in the examples they set. While completing medical school at UCSF, a troubling issue seemed to arise. Between her mother's experiences as an anesthesiologist and her own conversations with her family about their faith, the disconnect between the traditional medical objective of lengthening life at any cost and her family's spiritual teachings about impermanence became more and more apparent. It was this tension that ultimately drew her to palliative medicine, a practice that aims not to simply extend life, but to improve its quality, especially in patients living with fatal illnesses. In her new book, Dr. Pori recounts the most instructive and often heart-wrenching stories she's experienced in this line of medicine, intertwining them with the childhood memories of her family that have shaped who she is today. Dr. Pori says that in a field where physicians come face-to-face with mortality daily, there can be a surprising lack of fluency in discussing the hard truths of death, and that she has strived to change this by normalizing conversations about what kind of life matters most to patients at the end of their days. Today, we'll have a conversation about what makes life worth living and how even in the hardest and most difficult moments, patients and families can make medical decisions in line with their values. I think her book is timely and important, and in particular, her attention to language, both as an author and as a doctor, is a testament to the power of words and narrative and context when we're making sense of life and its end. Please give a warm welcome again to Dr. Sunita Puri. Welcome back to San Francisco, where you got your start as a doctor. Thank you so much, Lucy. And thank you all for being here tonight. I know, especially in San Francisco, people have a lot of different things they could be doing on any given night. And it means a lot to me that you came here tonight to join Lucy and I. So I'm thinking we could just start with a reading, if you don't mind. Absolutely. 
I think, you know, when Lucy and I were discussing this earlier, I thought maybe what I would read to open what I know is going to be a beautiful discussion tonight is the pivot point for me. And when I knew in my heart that I'd found my calling. So I'm going to read to you from chapter one, which is called Shift. And it is about the patient who I called Donna in the book. And talking with Donna was what made me realize that I would end up in palliative medicine. Sunlight poured through the window across from Donna's hospital bed. I noticed her squinting and lowered the shade slightly. Instead of hovering over her or leaning against the wall as she spoke, Dr. McCormick, Ellen, and I sat in gray folding chairs facing Donna. On the table next to her hospital bed, there was a brown tray with plastic triangles of smashed peas, fluorescent orange carrots, and a small chicken breast. Someone had checked the boxes low-sodium and renal diet and diabetic on a pink slip of paper taped to the side of the tray. It's dialysis food, Donna said, wrinkling her nose as she noticed me looking at her lunch. Makes me more nauseated than my kidneys do. A copy of Chicken Soup for the Soul, many of its yellow pages dog-eared, rested next to her untouched tray. Dr. McCormick, who was a palliative care physician I was shadowing on a two-week elective, spoke to Donna in a soft tone that exuded compassion and presence. We're from the palliative care team, and we're just here to get to know you and to support you as you think through some of the decisions your medical team is asking you to make, Dr. McCormick said. I need all the support I can get. Donna replied, her voice fading into a whisper as she made her way through her sentences. Donna's fatigue penetrated her every word and attempted action. Lifting a fork full of green beans to her mouth had become an accomplishment, she told us. She scratched her arms during our conversation and dry skin flaked onto that blue hospital blanket. I had seen patients who looked as chronically fatigued and debilitated by disease as she did, but none who refused the therapies we offered, even when I wondered if they were strong enough to benefit from them. Dread had consumed Donna on the ambulance ride from her dialysis center to the hospital. She told us she had felt her heart thumping against her chest as though it were warning her of impending danger. She knew her doctors would offer another procedure, another surgery to fix her fistula and allow her to continue dialysis. But a question surfaced in her mind, one she'd considered from time to time over the past several months. Would a shorter life without dialysis be better than a longer life with dialysis? I'm not suicidal, she whispered. I'm tired. She told us about the many ways that dialysis had enabled her to enjoy the past five years. She would miss her adopted daughter and the view of the Bay Bridge from her front porch. She would miss making her mother's recipes for ribs and lemon tart, but she wouldn't miss the crushing fatigue of kidney failure that had slowly deprived her of one independence after another, the ability to use the toilet in her Spanish tiled bathroom, the pleasure of taking a shower alone, scrubbing her body with lavender body wash, standing rather than sitting in a plastic chair, the full sensory immersion in her garden, hands deep in the fragrant earth as she tended her marigolds and daisies, leaving behind imprints of her knees in the soft dirt. 
I'm sorry this has been so tough for you, Dr. McCormick said to her, handing her a box of tissues. I hear you saying that dialysis has really helped you to live well and enjoy your life. But I also hear that over the past year, it's been making you really tired. And sometimes it's even made you sick. Yes, it has, Donna said, pausing to catch her breath. Even crying wore her out. Have your other doctors talked with you about what stopping dialysis would mean? I held my breath, unsure exactly what Dr. McCormick was was asking. Did he want Donna to say out loud that she knew she would die without dialysis? Honestly, they didn't say too much, she said. What would happen to me? Well, the first thing you need to know is that it is okay for you to want to stop dialysis if it is not helping you to live well, Dr. McCormick began, but it's also very important for you to understand what would happen without it. The toxins that dialysis usually removes from your blood would build up. And then I would die, Donna whispered. Yes, you would die from your kidneys failing, Dr. McCormick replied. I had never seen a doctor tell a patient so directly that they would soon die. I'd seen well-intentioned doctors try to soften the blow of hard facts by cluttering their sentences with rambling apologies or canned reassurances, talking around the truth. Their worry that a patient might be unable to handle plainly stated facts, that they must require unnecessary words and sentiments as a sort of shock absorber, struck me as a form of paternalism. Dr. McCormick's sentences, concise and compassionate, almost felt transgressive. How would I suffer? Donna asked, suddenly looking at me. Even though after years of studying, I could tell Donna everything about how her kidneys work and what happens to her body when they fail, I hadn't the slightest idea how she would experience dying from kidney failure. My silence stunned me. I struggled to understand how I could be on the cusp of becoming a physician and lack the words to answer her question, to guide her through the one transition every patient of mine, every human being, including myself, would experience. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can you tell us why that was such a pivotal moment for you and how it led you into your field and then... Um, for people who are here or listening, can you tell them exactly what palliative care is too? Absolutely. So how many people have been confused at one point or another about what that term means? I'm putting my own hand up as high as I can in this blazer of mine because I didn't really know, right? When I was becoming, when I was a medical student and becoming a doctor in my residency training, I had thought for a long time that palliative care and hospice were the same. Palliative care is a type of medical care that really focuses on treating, seeing and treating the physical, emotional, and spiritual aspects of suffering that come when a patient and a family are facing a serious illness. And sometimes that illness is something we cannot cure. Hospice is a type of palliative medicine that we provide in the last six months of a patient's life. And usually palliative care is 
provided most commonly in a hospital or a clinic these days, whereas hospice is mostly provided at home. And both hospice and palliative care teams are made up of a physician, a nurse or a nurse practitioner, a social worker, and a spiritual care provider. So that because to attend to all the domains of suffering that people experience and live with is really something that many people have to work together to do. And I think up until that point in my medical training, I had been so socialized to focus on cure and survival. I had come to believe that a longer life was a better life. And I was really trying to rage against the dying of the light, right? And the title of the book comes from that poem. And, and yet doing so was not satisfying because I found myself focusing more on organ systems and numbers, which are, of course, extremely important in the education of a doctor, but they are not the only education of a doctor. And I had always been a writer. And so to me, language was paramount in my interactions with people. But I lacked the words to talk to them about what sense they were making of their disease. I wasn't sure how to tell someone that we may not be able to fix a problem. And I became so fixated on a collection of problems that I was losing the image of the human beings before me. And that's when I did this two-week elective in palliative care, I was really searching for a reason to finish my medical training. And thank God I found that elective because it changed the course of my life. It's interesting because obviously the title of your book, That Good Night, is from this Dylan Thomas poem. And there's another poem by Dylan Thomas called Fern Hill. Mm -hmm. And some of the lines in that poem are, Time held me green and dying, but I sang in my chains like the sea. And I feel like that sort of describes to me what you are doing for people, right? It's not a rage necessarily. It's not a rage. And I love those lines that you just read because people can sing and breathe and live from within chains, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that goes far beyond when we are facing the end of our lives, right? Because there is so much suffering in the world today, which I am not really able to speak to with the eloquence I wish I could, but certainly far beyond just when we are looking at the end of our lives. We are, our chains are our human condition, right? Because Being alive as human beings means that we will one day not be alive, right? And that is one experience that unites us all. But part of what we get to do in medicine, I think, is to enable people's highest well-being when we are bound in these chains, when we are bound by our mortality, no matter what's going on in our health. I actually love that idea. I There was an article that I read recently that I think you might find really interesting because I think it sounds to me like your work is a lot about minimizing suffering or lessening suffering. Yeah. But then I also think telling people the truth, like Dr. McCormick did and you have learned to do so beautifully, also opens up this whole expansive realm of possibility that we wouldn't otherwise have. Um, There's a, a physician who does critical care at the Mayo Clinic who wrote about a revelation he had when intubating a very sick patient. And as Mm -hmm. you know, a number of patients who go onto a breathing machine either never wake up or, you know, die on the breathing machine. 
And he sort of conceives of that moment. He says, you know, if you are a parent and you're sending your child off to war, you have a going to war talk. You talk about how you might not come back. And so I love you. And here's what I have to say to you. And you send them off to war. And he says, I actually give my patients a chance to do that. I tell them when your loved one goes on this breathing machine, we are really hoping for such and such thing to happen, that it'll get them through this crisis period. That might not happen. And in the worst case, this might actually be the last time you could talk to each other. So let me give you a moment to do that just in case if there's anything you want to say. And it's, it's a revolution, right? It's a really beautiful, interesting thing. And he says, families will gather together, put their foreheads together and tell each other, what they want to say in that moment. And he says it completely changes the grief experience for a family if they lose somebody, changes the expectations of what happens when a family goes through that. And I think, to me, it's the the power of the truth to make something else possible, like intimacy and connection and, like you say, the sort of range of human experience. Um, there's another part of your book where you're talking about words And for people who haven't read it yet, it's so literary and nicely, it's such a pleasure to read. Um, And at one point, Dr. Puri says, she's talking about delivering bad news to a patient. And she says, I was learning that honesty, just like good writing, took the form of measured, compact, declarative sentences. I had to be Ernest Hemingway. And this sometimes felt brutal, the exact opposite of compassionate, but the honesty was the compassion. And I think even above and beyond honesty, you have also learned this way to to use words in a way that people can hear. I'm curious if you could describe another learning experience you had in which you and a mentor were talking with a family um, who was very religious, and you were trying to figure out how to communicate. Yes. So, I mean, you said so much that I want to respond to um, the beauty of an ICU physician saying, I don't know how this is going to turn out Mm -hmm. and giving people a chance to have their plan A and their plan B, right? And to be prepared for both. I think that's something that we have the immense privilege to do if we can find the moral courage in us as physicians to say these things kindly, compactly, compassionately to people. I think some some of the biggest challenging situations I've been in are when somebody, when a family or a patient uses a vocabulary that may not be my primary language, right? And science and spirituality, to get to your question about patients who are deeply faithful, I really, I was brought up by parents who are here tonight who um, really taught me that science and spirituality can sit side by side and that we can have fluency in the language of both. And I write in the book about an, a patient who I called Jack, who was a young man who'd undergone an endoscopy and unfortunately suffered a massive bleed and his heart had stopped completely unexpected because he was otherwise young and healthy. But because he lost so much blood and his heart stopped for so long, his brain never recovered from the many rounds of CPR we got. So he was in a persistent vegetative state and was the son of very deeply devout Catholic parents. And we were consulted, and this is when I was in fellowship at the county hospital in Santa Clara, 
Um, and we were consulted because he was coming in and out of the nursing home, as many patients in his situation often do, with infections. Infections of his urinary catheter, infections of his lungs from the tracheostomy and the ventilator that were keeping him alive. And as often happens with patients like Jack, we run out of antibiotics that can treat them because the bugs become resistant. So we were asked to help have a discussion with his parents because the best antibiotics we were giving were running out. We were running out of time for Jack. And the team asked us to, quote unquote, talk some sense into his parents who, quote unquote, didn't get it. And, you know, I think the way that we were able to help them, quote unquote, get it was because my mentor at the time had this beautiful way with them where she talked to them about their religious belief. She didn't talk around it and she didn't talk away from it. She didn't seek to silence it with the language of, of science or to invalidate where they were coming from. But when she was talking about CPR in particular, because he at any point could get sick enough that his heart would stop if we could not get a future infection under control, and she asked them in this beautiful way, do you think that when the heart stops, that is God's call? And I will never forget that moment because I was seeing someone who was a doctor, who was a scientist fluent in the language of the body's physiology and inner workings, able to acknowledge that the stopping of the heart could be talked about in a way that these parents, these grieving parents, these parents who had been grieving the loss of their child for years, they could hear that. And that was the miracle of language. And when we talked about miracles, too, because that's what they were hoping for, Jack's mother wanted her son to wake up and eat an orange again. That's what she wanted for him. And she would spray citrus-scented air freshener on his pillow and bring him a quilt that she had brought from home that she had sewed his birth date into. And you could tell that they were praying and holding on to any possibility that their son would be their son again. And yet this attending had a way of sitting with them and helping them to prepare for the more realistic possibility that they would lose their son. And they were able to hear that. And I think that was the miracle of language. It was also the miracle of listening. And that is something that I think we struggle to do well in medicine, to say, stay silent and to let a patient tell us their story, to let a family help us understand what are the conversations they've been having as a unit about what someone is going through. And I think it is by listening and sitting in silence and by really hearing what are the words someone is using to tell us about their experience, that's when we can be the most the best doctors, no matter what specialty we're in. And that's when I think we can actually cultivate the most meaning in medical practice. I love that, the miracle of language and the miracle of listening. Um, I wonder if there's also a miracle of witnessing, because I think, you know, you talk a lot about acceptance of suffering and acceptance of impermanence and what you learned, you know, bringing those ideals into medicine and into your practice. But I also think you can accept it all you want intellectually and it's still it's still so painful and yeah. sad and must be born you yep. know and there's this one paragraph that i think is so beautiful and compassionate where you talk about a patient who's 
really ill with emphysema. And he's, you write, tears slide down his face and neck, leaving small moist circles on his pillow and darkening the collar of his shirt. I was one of those hippies in the 60s that did yoga and was a vegetarian. And during that time, I really learned that death is going to happen for all of us. You can't live your life fearing it, he says, sniffling. But then when it gets really close, he covers his face, beginning to sob. And I think you do such a nice job. You know, the the monk Thich Nhat Hanh talks about these mantras of witnessing suffering where you say, I'm here for you. I see you. I see your suffering. I'm here for you. I see you. I see your suffering. And I think that is part of what I imagine you feel it means to be a doctor, right? Absolutely. And I think I learned very early on about the idea of suffering and impermanence in this human life. And I actually thought maybe I could read a little bit from the story of my father growing up because we would have these discussions when I was growing up about what it meant to witness suffering, right? And we're not good at that in medicine, or at least I wasn't. Um, I really wanted to fix things. I felt that if I couldn't fix a problem, that I was somehow less of a doctor, that I was failing my patient. And what I learned in this branch of medicine is that sometimes just sitting with people, looking them in the eye and seeing what they're going through and even saying, I can see that you are suffering. And I want you to know my role here is to be here with you and help to help do whatever I can to ease your suffering. Will you tell me about the ways in which you're suffering? Right. And not abandon you. And not yeah. abandon you, mm-hmm. right? That's such an important point because I think sometimes when I reflect back to my time as a resident learning how to be a doctor, I felt that if I couldn't fix a problem that I would get really shy and kind of back away from the situation when I most needed to step forward. I remember a psychiatrist when I was in medical school was training us all to do a psychiatric interview, and she always told us, move toward the difficulty. And I never understood that when I was in my training until I started to be with people for whom the difficulty was that I could not fix them. And maybe they knew that and weren't looking to be fixed. They were just looking to be seen. Mm. It's such a nice lesson for all of us. Absolutely. Um, I think we'd love to hear that part. Yes. Let me, let me find it here. So this is from a chapter in the book in which um, I write about my father taking me to a nursing home when I was a middle school and high school student. And he did this because he, he did a lot of community service when, when I was growing up. And I was a very, I I did not go along on these trips willingly. I was a very sullen high school student writing very bad, dark teenage poetry and trying to be an Indian Emily Dickinson. That's what I wanted to be doing. I did not want to be at the nursing home, but I went. And I want to tell you about why my father thought this was important, why it was important to understand the suffering that we will all go through as human beings and what it meant to witness it and be there and make a promise to ease it. My father knew a few things about suffering. The youngest of seven children, he grew up in Daryaganj, a district in Delhi that my father remembered fondly for a few things he enjoyed as a child. Sticky orange jalebi and milky chai, 
a rare outing to Golcha Cinema, and narrow interconnected alleys where he would hide from his mother and play cricket with friends from school. From the rooftops of apartment complexes, he would fly kites he'd made himself from paper and string, lying down to sleep on these same rooftops when summer arrived. Gazing at his neighborhood from this vantage point, he observed that suffering was inescapable because he saw it everywhere. The lepers who had so little that they begged the poorest families for scraps for dinner. And apartment complexes, an apartment complex filled with women who had been raped in the violence of India's partition, only to be abandoned or rejected by their families. And he saw the suffering of his own mother, whose rheumatoid arthritis was so severe that my father came home from elementary school to help prepare the family dinner. He'd mix together flour and water into a doughy paste and make oddly shaped chapatis with his tiny hands. Since my grandfather could never seem to keep a job, my father devised his own ways to help my grandmother buy food for dinner. He began to play marbles with local children and would bring home the prize money he won in street tournaments. Occasionally, he'd trek to wealthier areas and clandestinely attend weddings. When guests threw money at the bride and groom after the ceremony ended, my father would grab as many rupees as he could and run home. Witnessing my grandmother's suffering was unbearable for him. He prayed to God to give him his mother's arthritis. It would be easier to have the arthritis himself than to bear witness as she endured it. But this is my share of suffering, my grandmother would tell him when he shared his prayer with her. This is my luck, not yours. You cannot suffer for me. So you couldn't fix Dadiji's suffering, I would say. Although in retrospect, I'm not sure if I was making an observation or asking a question. No, my father acknowledged. But I had to learn that a part of lessening her suffering was just seeing that she was suffering and doing what I could to help her. My father didn't speak of suffering as something to lament or avoid. He spoke about it as part of being human, as something we all had the power to endure, even transcend. Suffering didn't preclude survival. Thank you so much. I love that your book is, you know, like it's a Buildings Roman for you, but then it's also a really interesting cultural exploration mm. and a love letter to your family and yes. what we learn from each other in families. It's um, Thank you so much for sharing that. Absolutely. Um, I'm getting questions from the audience, by oh, the yes. way, which is uh, really fun. Keep them coming. Um, one question coming from the audience uh, is about writing. And somebody said, I'm wondering if you wrote about these patients and encounters during your training and then in clinical practice real time, or was this book written in reflection or from memory? So that's a great question. I, um, I did keep a journal when I was in my training and I did that really because I was witnessing things I didn't know how to make sense of. So I would write down catchphrases, things I remembered from my conversations with my patients or things about the way they looked, the way they moved in the world. And I would refer back to those when I was doing the writing of this book. And it was actually very difficult for me to make decisions about which stories stayed in the book and which 
I'm going to save for later for pieces or the next book. Um, but I did, I took notes while I was in my training to make sense of what I was seeing. And also because I knew this book was in me. And I think other writers have talked about feeling like something is in them. And the best way I can describe it is that this book was pushing against my bones, that it was there and it was there throughout my training. Um, and I think that what, what I did in the writing of the book was get to go back to the impressions that I had and reconcile them with the memories that I had, which is memory is inaccurate sometimes. So having those even tiny little notes mm-hmm. on patients or other physicians or myself really helped me to, to make this book as accurate as I could. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. One of the things I really like about your book is that you are very honest about your own growth as a person and physician, and you... Don't spare yourself in talking about, you know, needing to stop making assumptions or needing to learn these new skills. Um, And I think this is a question from the audience. It kind of gets at a tension that that you may have reflected on. Um, The person wrote, you write and speak beautifully. Thank you. I wonder how you work with a family or patient who has a different attitude about life and its quality than you have. For example, you and the medical team may strongly believe it's beyond time to let go, yet the family believes any life is worth supporting mm-hmm. regardless of quality. Yep. Um, how, do you, how do you handle that? That's a great question, and it certainly comes up all the time. I think something that's very important for me in those situations is to recognize and to be self-reflective about when what I might define as a good quality of life is not what the family before me or the patient before me defines as a good quality of life. And for some people, especially those from certain religious traditions, a heartbeat constitutes life. And although it might pain me to see someone existing in a state I couldn't imagine existing in, part of what it means to do this work is to meet people where they are. And part of being able to do that is the internal work of understanding where you end and someone else's life begins. And I think I am able to do it because even though I may disagree with some of the decisions that are being made, I can still see the suffering and have compassion for it. And then I must attend to my own suffering and have compassion for myself when I go home that night and take care of myself so that I can come back and meet them again where they are the next day. Because I think we take an oath as doctors to do no harm. And part of harm, I think, is abandonment, as you talked about before. And so what does it mean to walk alongside someone, even down a path that you would not choose for yourself? And I think as tough as it can be, it is also an immense privilege because there's always something I've learned when I've done that. I've learned that people can find meaning no matter what the circumstances. And that's a lesson for me. The way that I first read you as a writer was in the New York Times. A few years ago, you published an essay called Unequal Lives, Unequal Deaths. And it was about, um, well, maybe I'll let you explain it. But the thing it brings up for me in this conversation is 
there are things that you are unwilling to budge on or accept, particularly around injustice and, um, and also lack of access. Right. So I'm curious to, if you could explain that essay, if people haven't read it, go find Sunita Puri's unequal lives, unequal deaths as an entry to this book. Um, yeah. Talk about that if you don't mind. Absolutely. So, um, in my very first year of being a palliative care attending, um, I had a job in which during the daytime, I was a palliative care attending in the hospital, and I would see hospitalized patients. But in the afternoon, I would get in my car and drive around South Los Angeles and see patients on hospice and home palliative care. And I was assigned to the South team, and I absolutely loved every minute of it, but it also broke my heart into a thousand tiny smithereens. Because what I saw that I wasn't prepared to see was that the same economic and social injustices that made people in those communities' lives shorter also made their deaths harder. The average life expectancy of the patients I saw in the zip codes I covered was about 10 years less than patients who lived where I grew up in Los Angeles, right? And I would go into their homes and I would want to make everything okay, right? That's what, again, even though I was in hospice and palliative care, I wanted to fix things. But I couldn't fix the fact that some people had children who worked all day and who could not take a leave of absence to care for their parents. I couldn't fix the fact that I would find some patients with terrible dementia home alone because the family could not afford a caregiver. I couldn't change the fact that Many lived in areas where they had pharmacies that would not stock the opiates they needed for their cancer pain because they lived in quote-unquote dangerous areas and the pharmacy was afraid to stock the medicines. I couldn't fix those things. And I was wholly unprepared for the way that the realities of someone's life influenced the realities of their death. And I... It was, again, a story that was pushing against my bones, and I had nowhere to go to really find help in these scenarios. I called my mentors from fellowship, and I said, you know, what what should I do? And they made some suggestions, but ultimately it was a lesson in acceptance for me about the limits of what I could do. But it was also writing that piece for me was a way of problematizing this conversation around the good death that we have in the United States. Because I think the imagining of a good death at home requires resources that groups like hospice cannot provide. And so complicating what that means and really reckoning with the fact that some of my patients who wanted to die in the hospital, which I thought was like the worst place to die, that was actually the best place for them. Because who's there? Professionals who have taken care of them their whole lives, who they knew would be the ones to expertly give them medications rather than having their nervous teenage son squirt liquid morphine under their tongue, right? And so doing that work really made me reconsider who has access to a good death. How can we modify or change what hospice can provide so that everyone can have access to that good death? And that was something I'd never thought about until I was the attending on the job, having to come up against the limits of a system that is broken, And part of why I wrote that piece was to complicate this discussion and this imagining we have about a good death, because sometimes a good death is in a hospital. 
and also to really urge us all to think about ways we can advocate for a hospice system that will serve everybody equally, no matter what inequities they have faced in their lives. And that I part of what I had written in the Times piece is in the book, because I just couldn't not include it. Mm-hmm. I think it's really wonderful. And I think, um, you know, insofar as your work includes bringing those things to light, expanding access to palliative care, and then just participating and leading a, a discussion culturally around this, right? I think the same injustices that are outside the hospital follow us in and the same taboos that are outside the hospital follow us in. Um, and thank you for your work, illuminating that and, and shifting that. I'm um, grateful for, to my patients for letting me into their homes. Mm-hmm. That's what they do on hospice. They let us mm-hmm. into their homes when we are strangers and they are at the time of greatest vulnerability and that's such difficult work. And I salute the people who do hospice because though it's complicated and the system limits us in doing everything we possibly could, it is still the work of the heart and soul. But the patients and families who welcome us in allow us to do it for them. A couple of people are asking questions about um, advanced care planning and how to talk about those issues with family members. I am. Um, I just want to reflect on it for a second because I think that phrase "good death." There's a lot of pressure in that, right? Yes. Like, um, I'm not sure there's such thing as a good death. I mean, death is sad and death is difficult, yep. and obviously, grief is painful. And um, it's funny because my late husband died in the hospital, yeah. which wasn't expected. Um, but actually, for me, actually, it was really um, like I. It was actually kind of comforting because it was such a um, sad and intensely emotional experience. And it was hard enough to sleep in our bed alone after that. And I actually was sort of glad that that yep. scene had not transpired at home, which I never would have known. Yes. And I think um, similarly, he and I talked a lot about what was important to him when he was really ill. My late husband died of lung cancer when he was 37. Um, and for him, mental lucidity was yep. top. We had a baby. He was, he was working as a writer. He wanted to be lucid. And if he couldn't be lucid, that could guide all other decisions. And I remember at the same time feeling an immense pressure, a, 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 like self-imposed pressure of, I need to advocate for him. And if I need to speak for him, I want to do a perfect job of it. Yep. And I know how complicated this stuff is. Even as a doctor, it makes me nervous. And so remember at one point he turned to me and he said, you know, I can tell this is a lot on you and I'm so grateful to you for like taking care of me and whatever happens, let's say I get medical care and it doesn't fit me or I get CPR and you know, I didn't want that. He's like, I know you will have done your best. And just so you know, the last day of your life is not the sum of your life. The sum mm-hmm. of your life is the sum of your life. Yep. And it just like lifted a weight, you know? And so I think stuff really matters. And at the same time, a layer of like judgment or pressure or something, I kind of want that to dissolve. And um, so that said, how can we do it perfectly? (laughs) (laughs) How do we talk to each other? (laughs) So you said so much that I just want to reflect on before I get to that question, which is that, you know, I'm so grateful for Paul's book and for your what you wrote as part of it and for your efforts editing it. So I think that is a lasting gift to the world. 
Thanks. And I just wanted to say a big, huge thank you in front of everyone here. Um, I think you also mentioned something about how dying in the hospital can be comforting. Something I learned from many of my patients is that when someone dies at home, many people were like, we're okay with hospice, but when he's about to die, let's move him elsewhere. Because there's a lot of cultural Mm. beliefs around what it means to live in a home where someone has died. I had patients, I had a patient who was a palliative care physician who said, I don't want my bed, as you mentioned, I don't want my wife to live in the bed where I died. And that was so powerful for me because I think Mm -hmm. the pressure you're talking about is this very like movie-esque picture of passing in the bed with a window open and a bird flying by (laughs) and whatever else, whatever other tropes they're using these days. And I think some of that pressure comes from our wanting to control what we can't control. Right. And I write about this in the book that what does it mean to come up against the limits of what we can control in medicine and in our lives? Right. And what does it mean to accept that which is beyond our control? Somewhat like they talk about in the serenity prayer in AA. And I think sometimes we make our very best plans and things don't go our way. And I think we try to control death in ways that death and nature will always outsmart us in some ways. And the pressure on surrogate decision makers to have everything go according to a certain plan is really immense. That's a weight many of them carry on their shoulders that is both a privilege but can become a burden if we're not careful, right? I think the ways that I think what Paul did for you is a huge gift to tell you what he wanted when he was lucid. Because I think so many of us avoid those discussions when we are lucid for fear that maybe we'll make ourselves get sicker by talking about death. Maybe death will come to us quickly if we say it's a possibility on the horizon. Um, I faced those same fears when, as I wrote about in the book, I talked with my own parents about what they would want. And those were very difficult conversations, even though I do this for a living. So there's that humanity in us that cannot be ignored, that facing this in the care and the life of someone we love is going to be difficult. But doing advanced care planning is a huge gift for ourselves. And it's a huge gift for the people who are going to be our voice. Can you explain, too, what you mean by that? Yes, absolutely. So advanced care planning means having conversations about who you would want to make your medical medical decisions if you're not able to. And it's also about indicating what level of intensity of medical care you might want for yourself in a variety of circumstances that may come up. So, for example, if your heart were to stop, would you want CPR? Would you want us to come in and try to resuscitate or restart your heart? Would you want to be on a breathing machine and have a machine breathe for you if your lungs failed? Would you want to be an organ donor? These are things that you get to have some say in if you have a conversation ahead of time. And I think where we're moving as a society medically is that whenever someone is diagnosed with a very serious disease, having these discussions from the beginning is so important because the earlier we have them, the less likely it is that we're going to have them in the heat of a catastrophe, which is what happens every day in hospitals and clinics. And there's so much suffering for the person who's the designated voice of the patient to be asked, and this happened, this said all the time, do you want us to do everything for your loved one? 
And how are we supposed to respond to that? But ahead of time, we get to think about what everything, quote unquote, means. We get to think about what we, what sort of everything we'd want for ourselves and to tell the people we love that so that they don't have to guess and we don't have to suffer and they don't have to suffer. At the end of the book, you talk about life lessons you have gained from your patients, Mm -hmm. thinking about mortality and meaning and your own personal meaning and decisions. And you make a big decision about your work and your training when you're finishing training. Um, Can you share some of that? Absolutely. So when I was finishing my training and I was up here in the Bay Area, I was really trying. I thought that I should stay in the Bay Area. I felt like this was where my friend network was. This is where my life was because I'd been here for 10 years. But then I thought about what I see every day. And what I see every day was that we don't know what's around the corner. And I really had to start to ask myself the questions that I asked my patients when I was thinking about where do I want to be. And so I started to ask myself, what's meaningful to you? Who's meaningful to you? What are your good days? What do you want those to look like? Who do you want to be with? What do you want to be doing? And the answer always came back to my family to my parents and my brother who were all in Los Angeles. And so for me, it was kind of a palliative care consult that I did for myself, which was awesome. It was so wonderful to turn what I, the language I had acquired and was using on other people in very difficult circumstances to turn that on myself when I still had some choice in shaping my life and where I wanted to be next. And I knew I would never forgive myself if I wasn't, if I missed time with my parents when they were healthy. And so I decided to go back to Los Angeles. And these questions that I ask every day are still questions that I turn on to myself when things are sometimes hard or I'm faced with forks in the road. What's meaningful to you? Who's meaningful to you? What are your good days? How can we maximize them? Right. Mm. And I think it applies to us every day that the lessons of palliative care are really the lessons of living well. The questions that we ask patients while they're dying, they're still living, right? The dying are still living. And the questions we ask them are the questions we should be asking ourselves so that we can live more fully, so that we can live without regrets. And that wasn't, those weren't the sorts of questions I would ask myself before then. Could you talk about advice you have for patients and families who are facing a serious illness? I actually, I'm asked this question a lot. And one of the answers I give is consider seeing a palliative care team. Yes. Um, as Steve Pantolet at UCSF says, you might not know what it is, but you want it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, can you tell people how they find palliative care and then also any books or websites or resources about advanced care planning or anything else. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's so funny because the term palliative care, whenever I introduce myself, I have to explain what that means and people can't pronounce it. And I've heard variations on it. Someone asked if I was a paleontologist (laughs) and this was the best. Someone asked, he was this lovely gentleman, the husband of a patient I was doing home visits on and I was doing home palliative care at the time. And he said, aren't you from the primitive care team? And I was like, (laughs) perhaps. Knows them. <laughs> so 
So anyway, where you can find palliative care, not primitive care, not the same thing. Um, If you're facing a serious illness, I think having a conversation with your doctor and saying, I have heard that palliative care could be useful for me for my symptoms, but also to help me clarify what's important to me as my life goes on with this illness. Do you have someone you can refer me to? Because I think when it comes from patients and families, it's incredibly important. And sometimes it's the only way, because I think we in medicine are still learning, when do we refer? When do we broach that topic? It really should be from the beginning. And so I would empower and encourage patients and families to ask for it and to have that conversation with the doctor and express it's important to me to feel the best I can, but also to tell my loved ones and you what I would want for myself. There's also websites like getpalliativecare.org, I believe, and the Center to Advance Palliative Care, CAPSI, is a great organization, and getting in touch with them would be a first step to help you find a palliative care provider if you're living in an area where you may not have access to one. And I think that is actually a very big obstacle for people that not every center has a palliative care provider. So trying to strategize with national organizations to locate someone who's nearby or could even do a phone consultation, I think is very important. Great. And that's for anybody who has a serious illness. It doesn't have to be terminal. doesn't have to be terminal. It could be any stage of an illness to treat your symptoms, to talk about your goals, to give you the best quality of life possible. And palliative care is available actually for patients of any age and any diagnosis. So it's not just if you have cancer. It's not just if you have heart failure. It's for everything Thank you. What are some of your favorite books? We're, we're finishing oh, yes. up in a second, by the way. Um, so I have a couple. I used to, or I still do, I'll sleep with books like on the other side of the bed sometimes <laughs> because I'm too lazy to get up and put them away. So, um, and some of the books that are currently on the other side of my bed are The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. I read that when I was a freshman in college and I wept, I think, on most pages. Um, And I underlined so much about the way she uses language is just incredible. Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed, which is a collection of essays that I think are extremely gorgeous. And I encourage everyone to read them. I just finished There, There by Tommy Orange, which I found to be riveting and just such an incredible beautiful, engaging read. Um, And I also just finished The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee by David Truer, which I also really, really deeply loved. I also keep a copy of the Bhagavad Gita next to my bedside because, and I often go back to it, kind of open it up at night to a random page. And there's always something in that beautiful poem that I need to remember. So beautiful. I have Uh, Two other questions from the audience as we get close to finishing. Um, Both of them are around questions that have come up culturally, and um, we may not have time, so I don't know if you want to choose. But one is, um, what's your perspective on medical aid in dying? Mm -hmm. And another one is, how do you think psychedelic drugs will change end-of-life experiences? So um, maybe if you could pick one. Those are both such great questions. Um, So to start with aid in dying, and I'll try to keep it brief, Um, I used to be very against it. I'll be honest. I thought that palliative care and hospice could make end of life the best possible for patients. And then I started seeing patients who were requesting it. And I started to see all the reasons why it actually might be a great choice for some patients. 
And so I do support people who are seeking aid and dying. And at USC, I wrote the policy for our institution on aid and dying because patients at our institution can go through it. But I think when people ask me about aid and dying, it's also a beautiful opportunity to talk to them about hospice and palliative care and how all of these things can coexist together and they don't have to be one or the other. And it really opens up a portal into how they see their end of life, what they worry about the most, the sort of suffering they fear. And we've been able to actually have the patients at USC who have gone through it have always been on hospice. And that's a really beautiful thing for me. Psychedelics are something that I have had a number of conversations with a colleague about recently because I read Michael Pollan's book mm -hmm. and I had read his New Yorker piece. But to be honest, it's something that I don't know much about in terms of their use. I think from what I have read, they can provide beautiful relief of the existential and spiritual suffering that people have, which is a very real thing at the end of their lives. And it's something that I hope to get more training on because I think Thinking outside of the box in palliative medicine is very important. And meeting people where they are, looking at the tools that they think may help them, and gaining expertise in how to use those if they make sense for someone is something that I think is part of a part of the challenge of this specialty and the privilege. Um, I think to end, I want to read something to you. And it's something that you wrote that's on the internet from when you were a first year med student. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and you were a student at UCSF and UC Berkeley, the joint program, right? It's funny. It's like this idea of going back to your old journals and seeing how it jibes with who you are now. And I think you wrote an essay and then you write this introduction to yourself as an accompaniment to the piece. And you talk about how you were an anthropology major. You did a thesis on domestic violence among South Asian immigrants. You then did a master's in Oxford and wrote about photography in the 1800s and how it depicted people in India during the Bombay plague versus actual descriptions of patients from that time. Isn't she interesting? And you closed it by saying, all of these experiences have prepared me for my current journey through medical school. In the future, I would really love to be involved in issues of women's health in immigrant and refugee communities in the US and communities in India. So you didn't quite do that. But then you write, <laughs> And maybe you didn't know what palliative care was at this time, right? But you write, I did not. You write, yes. <laughs> this is so, you write, I want to be able to combine straight up medical care with the care provided by listening, counseling, and support. And so I want to enter a specialty that will allow me to do this. I would love to combine community-based medical work with a teaching career so that I could encourage students to think about issues of culture in medicine, to learn the problematic history of Western medicine and its impact on various communities, and to bring narrative of all kinds to medical education. So I think it's so interesting to see the way in which you are living your values and the way in which you really help other people live theirs. So thank you so much for being thank here tonight. You, thank Lucy. you. So we'd like to say thank you to Dr. Shanita Puri, who is Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of Southern California and author of the beautiful new book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. We also thank our audiences here and on radio, television, and the internet. I'm Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, and this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned.